right, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 4. Do not worry, I will not be preaching from Judges on Easter Sunday. Not that that would necessarily be a bad thing, but we will be in the Gospels next Sunday. But today we continue our study of the book of Judges. Last week, Dr. Edens began by looking at two of the first three Judges. So we looked at Othniel and Ehud yesterday, or last Sunday, I should say. And today, we're going to look at the only female judge in the entire book. And her name is Deborah, and her story is composed in Judges 4 and Judges 5. So today, we're going to look at chapter 4. One of the things you need to realize, and you've probably already picked up on it, is that Judges can be a very graphic book with a lot of violent detail. But what you need to understand is that one of the main themes of the book is to show us that humanity is deeply flawed and that they make mistakes and that they do really, really bad things. And so I don't want you to view these judges as the heroes of the book because there is only one hero in this book and it is God being faithful to his people and the covenant that he made with the Israelites. I also would caution you to understand that as we're reading this book together, maybe you're reading it on your own at home as well, what the author is giving us is descriptive information. So he's describing what's happened in all of these stories. He's not prescribing that we follow after these people. That should be a comfort to you, that God is not calling us to do some of the violent, graphic things that we see happening in this book. It is descriptive in nature, not prescriptive. Now, the story this morning is very graphic, but God is going to remain faithful to his people in spite of this story. So if you would, we're going to begin at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is what the author of Judges tells us. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Heresheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. 
Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Habab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Haresh Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. What we see is something that we've talked about every single week since we started. If you remember nothing else about the book of Judges, please remember this. There is a cycle that is happening throughout this book. And what the author does in Judges 4 is actually explain to us again, re-emphasizing what that cycle is. The first part, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what verse 1 tells us of chapter 4. So they're sinning. Verse 2, we see that God oppresses them through the Canaanites. So they have consequences. Verse 3, he sends Deborah onto the scene. But before that, the people cry out. So right in these first four verses, we see four of the five elements of the cycle that you and I and everybody else has been preaching on since we started. This cycle to the book of Judges remains key throughout almost every single story. And at the very beginning of chapter 4, we see the author pointing out to you those specific elements of the cycle. Now we get to the final step of the cycle at the end of the story, when the Israelites finally have peace. But these judges come onto the scene because the Israelites crave leadership. 
They want somebody that they can follow after. And the reality is, for you and I, every one of us in this room, whether you are a leader or not, you want leadership. You want somebody to follow. And we see that when the Israelites had this judge come onto the scene, he brought peace for a certain period of time. But once that judge died, they returned to the same wicked ways that they had fallen prey to before. This is no different than the cycle that you and I are constantly involved in. We are looking for leadership. And the reality is, many of us in this room, if we'll be honest with each other, look to other human beings to fulfill that leadership void instead of God himself. And this is exactly what the book of Judges shows us. That even though these judges come on the scene and they defeat the the enemies of the Israelites and they bring peace and prosperity for a period of time, it never satisfies them completely. They always turn away again. Why is that? Because a human judge cannot change the heart of man. These judges were never designed by God to come in and transform the people's hearts. That is something that only God himself can do. And so this cycle repeats itself, not only in the book of Judges, but throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites can never completely remain true to the covenant unless the God of Israel can change their hearts, unless they are changed from the inside out. Judges is cautioning all of us to be careful who we put on a pedestal. Because the reality is, I cannot change anyone's heart in this room. The next pastor here is incapable of changing anyone's heart in this room. The only one who's responsible and has the power to involve a heart change is Jesus Christ. And what Judges shows us is that as awesome as Deborah and Samson and Gideon are, they cannot change the hearts of the people because they don't have the power to do so. I can remember as a junior and sophomore in high school, two key families that were close to my family, both of them got caught up in affairs. These were people that I had looked up to my entire life. They were pillars in our church, major influencers, never would have thought that they were capable of this type of behavior. And now, in hindsight, when I go back and I think about those moments in my life, what God was teaching me is, do not put man on a pedestal. Your small group leader, a pastor, another minister, is as flawed and as failed as we all are. So we need to be careful that as we look to humans to provide leadership, that we remember that they also are submitting to the leadership of the one true leader. And the danger of putting too much stock into human leadership is that if that leader fails you, it can shatter your faith. It can cause you to turn away from the one true leader, which is God. And the reality for us is that sometimes, unintentionally, human leaders become the ones that we really look to in times of crisis, in times of discouragement, when we should be looking to the one true leader. And this is what we see right here. We're going to see by the end of the story that even though Deborah is a hero, 
the book teaches us that there is only one true hero, and it's the faithful God of Israel. But we also see in this story the strength of Deborah. Now, I want you to understand just how rare it is for a male military leader to tell a woman in ancient Israel that I'm not going to fight the Canaanites unless you go with me. That's not the norm in this day and time. Men and women had unique, distinct roles, and there were very few women, if any, that had this type of power in Israel. But this masculine warrior is saying, I am not going to fight the Canaanites unless you, Deborah, go with me. Which is just a reminder to all of us that God works many times in ways that we would not expect. The Bible is full of this. David was the least likely of Jesse's sons to become king of Israel. It wasn't Jesus and the disciples who fed the 5,000. Instead, it was a little boy who had five loaves and two fish. It wasn't James, Peter, and John, the pillars, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, who were chosen to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Instead, it was a Jewish man who was known for killing Christians. And it wasn't a political military ruler who came to overthrow the Romans as Messiah. Instead, it was a poor man from Galilee who walked around healing people, washing people's feet, and ultimately died on the cross willingly, even though he had the power to resist it. Jesus works through people as he sees fit. And he doesn't care gender, he doesn't care age, he doesn't care nationality. The kingdom of God is spread through who Jesus chooses to use, regardless of any external condition that we as human beings want to place on it. And we know that this is, this is earth-shattering. To find a woman with this type of leadership in a patriarchal society goes against the grain of that society. And yet Jesus uses her. And she becomes one of the most powerful women in all of Israel. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India for many, many years. And she would go and she would help little girls who had been solicited into prostitution to make money for the Hindu temples. She would go and she would pull them out of that slavery. And she would dress up in Indian clothing and walk all over the country in hot conditions unpaved roads just to save one little girl from being solicited in these temples. She died at the age of 83 years old. But there was a little girl who wrote her a note before she died. And the question was, what is missionary life like? And her response was pretty simple. She said, a missionary life is simply a chance to die. And that's true of you and me in this room. Following after Jesus, simply put, is a chance to die. Whether that be a physical death, whether that be putting aside passions and desires that we have that are not of God, following after Jesus means a chance to die. Hear me this morning. God can work through whoever he wants to work through. If you were to take Women and children 
out of the church of Jesus Christ around the world, we would be in deep trouble. Every gender, every age group, from the two-year-old to the 100-year-old, matters in the kingdom of God and matters to the church of Jesus Christ. Because every one of us, as believers in Christ, have the Spirit of God residing in us. There are not different spirits for men and women and children. The Spirit of God resides in all of us if we believe in Jesus. Therefore, every single person matters to God. Deborah was the person that God chose to use to give the sign to Barak that he could then go in and deliver the people from the Israelites. We also see in this chapter that the author of Judges is very, very intentional about citing his sources. Because in verses 14 and 15, three times you see the author, the author say, the Lord did this, the Lord did this, the Lord did this. He wants to make sure that you and me and his original audience know that Deborah, J.L., are not the heroes of this story. It is God. Most of our English translations have Lord in all caps. And that's intentional. That means that the Israelite God, Yahweh, is being described in the text. So anytime you see a Lord in all caps, it is a way to set apart the God of Israel from all the other gods that were available in that day and age. The Jewish people had this intense belief in what is known as monotheism, which is a fancy word for one God. But it wasn't just that ancient Israel worshipped the God of Israel. It was also that they, he, that they believed that he was the only God. And this is what you and I believe. It's not just that Jesus is the best God. It's that he is the only God. Every other God is false. So when we're talking with people, when we're dialoguing with neighbors and friends many of whom might believe that Jesus is just one way to eternal life. We have to communicate in truth and in love that he is not just one God among many. He is the only God. He is the only way to salvation. So the monotheism that we adhere to as a church is not just one God, but the only true God. The author of Judges cited the source. He wanted everyone to know that the one that was ultimately responsible for this victory was not Barak. It was not Deborah. It was him. Because he is faithful to his promises. Plagiarism is a major problem in academic settings. If you plagiarize a paper in high school or college, you get an automatic F and you possibly could be expelled. The great poet and playwright T.S. Eliot wrote a poem in 1922. It's called The Wasteland. You might have heard of it. He came under criticism sometime later because he had actually taken a large portion of that poem and it was comprised of other lines from lesser known poets. And if you go and do a Google search, not right now, but later, 
you will see that there have been lots of famous sermons and speeches and articles and books that are full of plagiarized material. Attributing something to yourself that was not original to you. When we see this passage here, and we see all of the ways that the author of Judges makes sure that he knows that everyone else is aware that God is responsible for this, it should take us back to our own lives and make us think about all of the things that have happened. Successes. Whether you are hardworking, disciplined, make good grades, have a good job, have good networking connections. It's a reminder to all of us to make sure that we understand that the reason those things happen is because God allows it to happen. And this goes against what you and I have been taught growing up in America, that if you work hard enough, that if you make good grades, that if you have good connections, you can get this great job and make lots of money, and that's all because you were willing to put in the work. But that is not true. God allows these things to happen in your life. And we, we refuse to give him the credit for all of the ways that we have success in this world. We are guilty of spiritual plagiarism. Yes, we want people to work hard. Yes, we want good jobs. And we want our kids to succeed. But not according to the world's standards. According to God's standards. And success in the world and success as a follower of Christ could be completely different. You do understand that if life was about growing up and getting a good job and living in America and having a nice house and a nice car, then we would have zero missionaries on the mission field. Right? If that was the goal in life, then we would have no missionaries. We would have no people sacrificing jobs and families to go and serve in places where God has called them to go. So when we sang in this last song that following Jesus is like dying to follow him, that's what we're talking about. Understanding that the American dream is something that you and I need to give up, crumple up into a ball, and throw it in the trash. Following Jesus means we might have to die to the things that society tells us are successful. Your ability to solve problems, your ability to work hard, those are gifts that God has given you and use them for his glory and his purposes. Whether that means staying in America or moving halfway across the world. Let's make sure that we cite our sources and that we give God the credit for the success that we have in life. And then we also see that this chapter shows us that God ultimately brings victory for his people. Because here's what happens. Barak goes and he annihilates, he routs Sisera and his troops. But Sisera escapes and he goes to Jael's house. Now as we were reading this story, you probably saw in verse 11... It doesn't really fit into the narrative because the narrative stops and explains to us 
how Heber the Kenite moved to a location and he left his descendants and moved to this different spot from everybody else. And as you're reading the chapter, it doesn't really fit into the narrative. And you don't really understand why it's there until you see the end of the story. When you realize that God strategically placed Heber and his family in that location because he knew that Sisera was going to escape and he was going to come and seek peace with Jael. And so he comes into the tent not realizing that Jael is actually for the God of Israel. And she gives him a glass of milk She tells him to lay down, and we know the rest of the story. She drives a nail through his head. But see, oftentimes that's how it works. When we read stories like this, and we see that God strategically placed Heber and his family in this location because he knew what was going to happen down the road. And many times for you and I, it's only in hindsight that we realize how God was working in our lives. When you're going through that success, when you're going through that failure, sometimes you don't understand why God is allowing it to happen. But if you'll stay faithful to him, on the flip side, you can look back in hindsight and see, you know what, now I know why God allowed me to experience that heartache. Now I know why God wanted me to have that success even though I didn't deserve it. It was to teach me more about his character and about his nature. And in this story, after we finish it, we can go back and see that's why J.L. moved to that specific location because God wanted to use her to deliver the Israelites from Canaan. We get to the end of a story like this And the question becomes, why is God working through this graphic display of violence? I know that's what you're asking. Isn't there some other way that God could have delivered the Israelites from the Canaanites in this story? Couldn't they just had a handshake of peace and the Canaanites make their way out of the land? It would have been a lot nicer. Here's the answer to the question that you all have. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God chose to work in this specific way through the Israelites. But here's what I do know. At the very beginning of this chapter, he tells Deborah, you tell Barak that by the end of this story, he is not going to be the one who gets the credit. Instead, it's going to be a woman that goes before him. That's the Spirit of God speaking that into Deborah. God knew that a woman was going to be the hero of the story. So he knew exactly how it was going to end. He was faithful to exactly what he told Deborah he was going to do. Now the method by which he accomplished it, maybe we're uncomfortable with. But the reality is, friends, you and I are not dealing with a God understanding of knowledge or a God understanding of of holiness. We don't understand every decision sometimes that God chooses to make. But we know that his character is faithful. 
And we know that he is exactly who he says he is. And so when we get to stories like this that kind of make us uncomfortable because it's in the Bible, the reality is you've probably seen a movie with a scene similar to this. But because it's in a holy book, we think it doesn't belong. God is faithful. I love this quote. And since we're talking about citing our sources, I have to cite the source because I don't want to be accused of plagiarism. But there's a very well-known pastor in New York City. You, know, you all know who I'm talking about. I quote him quite often. But this quote is really, really good. And it sums up what I'm trying to communicate, except way better. Just because we don't see a reason why God allows evil and suffering doesn't mean there isn't one. Does that make sense? God's ways are much larger, are much greater than ours. And just because in our finite minds we get to a story like this and we say, why does God have to kill Sisera in this way? Why does he have to use such an evil method to destroy him? The reality is that just because we can't come up with a reason doesn't mean that God can't. Evil and suffering exist all around us. And it's going to come a time, if it already hasn't, in your own life, when you come up upon suffering, where your body is stricken with cancer or disease, or someone close to you is going through a hard time. And if you can't come up with the answer for why the evil or suffering is happening, and it causes you to walk away from your faith, you're missing what God might be showing you. Because He works in ways that we cannot comprehend. And His holiness is so much different than what we as human beings can comprehend that we don't always understand everything that He throws our way. There is not a Google search for every situation and experience you will have in this life. We must be comfortable and accept that some things have to be believed by faith. J.L., Deborah, Barak, these three heroes of the story remind us that, number one, God uses flawed human people to accomplish His purposes. And number two, at the end of the day, the only true hero in any of our lives that we can count on completely every single time that is faithful to every promise he delivered is God. He is the faithful Israelite. He is the one that the book of Judges points to. And next Sunday, when we celebrate the resurrection, we can look up on that cross and understand fully that Jesus was faithful to endure the pain and suffering that you and I deserved. He is the hero of our faith. Pray with me this morning. God, 
You love us. You care for us. You provide for our needs. You are faithful in every single promise that you have made to us. And in the book of Judges, you are faithful to the covenant that you made with the Israelites. That even though they are going to make mistakes and they are going to turn away, you are faithful to deliver them. Just like you are faithful to deliver every one of us. God, we all come with sin. We all come needing forgiveness and grace and mercy. And your word tells us that you offer it every single time that we ask for it. So for that, we praise you and we thank you. Teach us what it means to follow after you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.